love for the word and his love for you. I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts, our ears to hear you and what you're saying to us this morning. Pray that your peace would be here with us, that Gordy would hear clearly from you what he, you have for us. Amen. Well, good morning again. It's all of a sudden got really cold. I, I dressed for summer because it was really nice this morning at about 7 o'clock. And uh, something happened. So I'm a little underdressed and feeling. Uh, so we'll try to warm you up with some Holy Spirit fire. You got a Pentecostal up here. So there you go. Um, so again, happy Mother's Day. I know Mother's Day is a real mixed bag for a lot of people emotionally, and we recognize that as a church. And so in a few minutes, we're going to just honor all the women in our church and, and bless you uh, for the blessing you are to us. Uh, and we, we recognize that many people are missing their parents. I spoke to my mom today. She was only able to talk to me for about two minutes, which is very unusual for my mom but with her health issues and some of us have, are bereaved as moms. And, and so we, we recognize there's joy, there's pain in all of that. And, and, but we, we, believe, we believe it's important to honor that and name that and be that together as a community. So it's with that spirit that we're going to be blessing you in a few minutes um, as part of our ministry time today. So as our, our picture shows, we're still in the season of Easter in the Christian year. The season of Easter begins with Resurrection Sunday on Easter Sunday and goes to Pentecost Sunday. And um, we are uh, in that mysterious time in the story between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension and when he sent the Holy Spirit. And it was a weird time because he was alive, but nothing was the same anymore. It was just... Very disorienting time. And the disciples just didn't know when he was going to show up. And when he did, it was always like, boo! It was like a surprise. <laughs> you know, it was kind of that kind of showing up. And uh, whether it was the people on the road to Emmaus, some, some people believe, by the way, that was a husband and wife couple, a discipleship couple. It says they were two disciples. Who's that? Who says that they had to be both men? We often think they are, but it could have been a married couple. Um... And to Mary, of course, she thought he was the gardener. And, um, and, the, and the disciples thought he was a ghost when he showed up in the upper room. So there's all of this ambiguity and mystery and this in-betweenness. And we've been looking at the story uh, through the lenses of a sustainable outward focus. And what we mean by that is we believe we're called as a church to be a servant community, to be outward facing, that we don't exist for ourselves. And it's such a blessing to me that most of the people that are part of our community garden don't go to our church. And there's just, there's just more, three more boxes that were taken this week, I heard, uh, from just people in the neighborhood. It's just so cool. And most of the people that are, not in, the, that are in the Montessori don't go to the church. So these are connection and pathways that God is giving us that are natural relational points to, to be good news, to be good newsing together as a community. And so we want to do that in a way that's sustainable. 
that burnout has been a common hazard of people who desire to, to serve? And how do we avoid being unsustainable in our service? And so we've been looking at the Gospels and the story of, uh, of the Gospels and walking through the with the lectionary. By the way, hundreds of millions of people around the world read this text that we just read this morning. And um, funny names and all, they read it. And um, it's really cool to just be going with the whole church, universal, around the world, looking at these texts together. Not everybody does, but hundreds of millions of people do. Especially the high churches, like Catholic churches and Anglican churches, uh, go through these texts together. And many evangelical churches and Pentecostal churches are beginning to take this on because they discuss, they, they, they're realizing the richness about walking through the story together as the family of God worldwide. With all of our diversity and all of our differences of opinion, uh, it's fun. I'm sure that with the one given text, you'd have 25 different sermons on it, and you'll get another one now. Um, so, interestingly, in the, even though we're in the season of Easter, the lectionary jumps ahead into the book of Acts. You notice that? That we're not in the gospel here, we're in the book of Acts. So, this is after Pentecost. And I think, you know, it's the story of the premature death of this wonderful woman of God named Dorcas. And it's also the story of her resurrection. It's a story that reminds us um, that if we are going to have an ongoing, sustainable outward focus, we need to embrace the reality of this sense of in-betweenness that doesn't end with Pentecost. This sense of ambiguity and mystery and in-betweenness that happened between the, the resurrection and the, and, the, and the ascension continues through church life. And unless we embrace that, we're going to find ourselves unsustainable. So I want to talk about that a little bit today. And the, the sense of in-betweenness that we are dealing with today is this tension between the already and the not yet. And what do we mean by that? Well, for those of you that have been in the vineyard for any period of time, you know that this is language that we use to describe the present reign of God on earth. The present reign of God on earth. Does that sound a little bit ridiculous sometimes? How many think the world kind of looks nowhere near like the present reign of God? Right? And unless you have an understanding of the already and the not yet, it's going to be a very confusing concept. This idea of the already and the not yet was inaugurated when Jesus came because... You know, John the Baptist said, the kingdom of God is here. And then when Jesus came, Jesus announced the kingdom of God has arrived. And everybody got excited. We're going to kick ass and get the Romans out of here. And, and some wonderful things begin to happen. The good news was proclaimed to the poor, just like the prophets prophesied of Messiah. The sick were healed. The dead were raised. Demons were cast out. Blinded eyes were opened. The lame walked. It was incredible, and so there was this initial euphoria that happened. But after a period of time, disillusionment set in because there was a sense of disappointment. Even John the Baptist was a little bit disappointed with Jesus as he's suffering in prison, and he sends messengers, he sends an email to Jesus, and he says, are you the one, or is this it? Is there more, or is there more here? And so Jesus sent back his message, didn't he? 
The sick are healed, the lame walk, the blind see, and blessed are those who are not disappointed in me. Interesting words. So there was still sin and evil, and sometimes I get a little annoyed with the gospel writers because they seem to focus so much on, on the good things that happened. They don't tell us about all the hundreds of people at the pool of Siloam that didn't get healed. They tell us about the one guy that did. Well, what about the rest of them? And what about all the people that did die and didn't get resurrected? And you, got, you better believe there were a lot of them in Jesus' life and ministry and in the early church. In fact, this story that we're telling today was actually not the norm. Most people, when they died, stayed dead. So there was still sin and evil, and even those who were healed in the life and ministry of Jesus still eventually died. Even Lazarus, raised from the dead, eventually died. Even Dorcas, raised from the dead in this story, eventually died. So there, it produces this sense of tension. Even Jesus himself, the Messiah, the king of this kingdom, rejected, brutally tortured, and crucified, His resurrection confirmed the inauguration of the reign of God on earth, and he commissioned us to announce that the arrival of that reign and expect the signs of that reign breaking in. However, if we are going to be sustainable, then we need to hold in tension the sense that we still live in the reality of a sinful, fallen, broken world, and yet not lose that expectancy that any moment God could surprise. God could break in like he does in this story today. And our text today is a fascinating look at this tension because you, you see on one hand a premature death, you see grieving, and, you, and Peter is in a, you know, the text doesn't really do justice, but if you look closer at it, at, at, you begin to see that Peter doesn't rush through this. He has a walk in and says, oh, let's get it from the, that doesn't happen. He walks in and he grieves with them. They show him the clothes she made. This wonderful woman who was such a hero of faith. And she, I mean, I don't know what she got all the time, but she had this incredible overflow of good works. It says she served the poor. Somehow she created margins in her life to bless so many people. And perhaps there was a bit of a burnout there. I don't know. Maybe she overdid it. Maybe that caused her death. We don't know. It's not ours to judge or to say. Scripture doesn't say it. So we have no business even speculating about it. She just died. I mean, no shit happens. Right? You look a little sleepy, so I'm going to be a little... Uh, these things happen. Life happens. It means that we live in the reality of this broken world. And our text looks at this tension of grieving and yet the kingdom breaking in. It, it's... It, it, it's hit me this week in a number of ways with my own father and his situation. I was in Calgary last week, of course. We were looking at making hospice arrangements and going into palliative care. Then I'm offering spiritual direction to somebody on, by Skype this week, and they tell me, oh, yeah, my mom was in the same situation six months ago. They gave her two or three weeks to live. And now they just sent her home because she's not going to die. And they can't figure it out. Her body was riddled with cancer. Explain that one to me. Or about the movie Breakthrough. Anybody seen that? The Breakthrough movie? 
The Vancouver Sun did an amazing review on this movie. I was so proud of the guy who, who did the review. It's a remarkable true story of a teenager who was adopted, a Guatemalan boy, adopted by a loving American family. But he was struggling with his own sense of identity and belonging. And so he, in a bit of rebellion, he ended up going on, on some ice with his friends and they fell through the ice. And so search and rescue came and got two of his friends up, but they couldn't find him. And as, as they're almost giving up the, the search, a voice tells the rescuer, to go, one of the rescuers, to go back and find John. And they find him, lift him out of the lake with no pulse or breath. They performed CPR on him for 27 minutes with no result. The doctor invites the adopted mother to come and say goodbye to her son, and she does. But as she does, all of a sudden they find a faint pulse. So they put him into a medically induced coma. The movie powerfully deals with this tension of the already and the not yet in the story. I haven't seen it, but... According to the reviewers, the reviewer of the Vancouver Sun, they engage in this tension between wanting to believe God for a reality, or for a miracle, and yet embracing reality. And, and how do you, where does faith come in, and where does surrender come in? What, how does that all work? And it all comes to a head when the doctors recommend that he be taken off the drugs for the coma, because they say they're beginning to toxify his body, and they're putting him at more at risk. So they, with a lot of conflict, Make, make the decision to trust him to God. And it wasn't easy. There was a lot of... I found with grieving and crisis in families, it just brings a lot of conflict and strife to the surface. Just emotions are so high. And the movie brings this out between the doctor, the pastor, you know, just different people involved in the story. And it, instead of dying, the boy recovers, and within a few days, he's back in school. Just an unbelievably baffling miracle. And you'd think that this would be a cause for celebration at the school, and for some it was, but there was also other students who were resentful and questioned why he was spared when their own loved ones died when they prayed. And the sudden reviewer, without denying or diminishing the story, I was so proud of this guy. He asked the same question. He says, why did others' prayers not get answered? And the only answer we have is, we don't know. And that is the, the mystery that we embrace in this tension of the already and the not yet. I've been, I grew up in the, surrounded by expectation of the miraculous and saw tremendous healings. And then watched my own little two-and-a-half-year-old baby sister die. My dad even gave us the opportunity to try to raise her from the dead. They had that kind of sense of expectation. And yet somehow we embraced this tension that when we realized she wasn't coming back, we released her to God, budded on earth to bloom in heaven. And being a healthy community means embracing this mystery, this tension. And so in verse 36, it, it tells about Dorcas and her, her good works and using her spiritual gift to clothe the naked, to, to, to do what Jesus said to do. She loved the poor. She was likely a hospitable person, having people into her home, obviously a person of wealth that could have the kind of resources and time to serve in this way. By the way, 
many wealthy women supported Jesus in his ministry. Mary Magdalene was a very wealthy woman. There's no way she could have a bottle of perfume like that without being wealthy. And in the early church, it was many wealthy women who supported Paul. It kind of, let's, let's say it moderated Paul's patriarchy. Verse 37, about that time she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. So you see this, um, this sense of accepting the reality that she's died, and they prepare her body for burial in the Christian way of, of honoring the, the reality of the resurrection. <clears throat> and they washed her body, and they were actually just preparing it for burial. But me, it's interesting that there were a lot of prayers that went for her healing by a very faithful community, a very faith-filled community. Yet she died. And so they were ready for the ashes to ashes and, and dust to dust. And they called for Peter. Maybe they wanted him to do the funeral. They heard that he was nearby. And I think there, there could have been an aspect of them wanting to see a resurrection or hoping for a resurrection. That may have been residual. You know, you know Peter's moved in signs and wonders. Maybe God's going to do a miracle. But I think more than that, there was just this longing for pastoral care. They wanted a shepherd. The psalm says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. And when people are going through grieving, they need presence. They need the presence of God. The problem is that often we're like that little girl whose mother said, Jesus is with you tonight. And she said, yes, but I need God with skin on. And we need God with skin on. And, you know, I, last Sunday I was in so much pain, I, could, I, was, I was almost numb. I kind of went through the, the service in, in, in uh, automatic pilot. And, and just because of the, all of the emotions and the grief of the last week and, and, and still the uncertainty and the unknown of, of what and when and my mom ending up in ER. And I remember coming into the service and just kind of, you know, I've done this for 40 years. I can do it again. But you know what was the most powerful thing for me? Was when some of you just came up and you hugged me and you were just there. And, and just being there, I just felt like I was able to share a little story. Just like these women did with Dorcas. They, they, they showed a piece of clothing and I think there was a bit of story that went with each of those works that she did. And as some of you were standing with me and just being there, I just felt these stories come. And as I shared those stories, it just unfroze my heart. Something happened there that really connected me because I did not want to be here last Sunday. But something about you being present to me just so changed everything. And it just spoke to me. Just the power. When we don't have answers, when we don't, we can't figure out the mystery, just being present to one another is just so powerful. And this is what Peter was doing. He didn't have answers. He, he probably didn't know. I, in fact, I believe with all my heart, he didn't know. He didn't know what God was going to do when he went. Was there hope? Possibly. But he just went to be present 
And let me tell you something. There's something about being lovingly present to one another that brings the resurrection. Whether it's the literal resurrection or just the life of God comes back. And I had a resurrection last Sunday. Some of you just let me share my, my dad's stories and stories of the last week and, and, and how God had, in spite of all of the craziness, been so present with us. So I understand the, the, the ambiguity of these people. Is God going to raise her? Is he not? They didn't know. But they asked Peter to come, and they sent two people with, to get him. Now, how many were needed to get Peter? One. Why did they send two? Just practice whatever you do. Practice community. Practice doing it together. Verse 39, Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. And all the widows stood around him crying, showing him the robes. So what's he doing there? He's, he's grieving with them. He's being present to them. And then he sent them out of the room. And I think this is the segue between the already and the not yet when there's that ambiguity. It's, it's contemplation and silence and solitude. And he needed time just to be alone. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, those who cannot be alone cannot be in community. And those who cannot be in community cannot be truly alone. And I think there was just, maybe Peter saw something stirring. You know, her name, Tabitha, literally means gazelle. And there's actually a, a Dorcas gazelle that is very prolific in Israel. And back in those times, it was even more prolific. And who knows? Maybe he was grieving with them, and maybe he looked out a window, and he saw one of those gazelles, and something stirred in his heart, and the Lord said, hey, Peter, see that? She's not done running yet. I don't know. I don't know. But something happened as Peter was praying, and I think he said, Lord, what are you doing? Jesus said, I can only do what the Father's doing. So he couldn't go there and have his faith formula and just, you know, he wasn't some God superman of faith and power. He went in there dependent, humble, broken, remembering, and all that stuff going on, right? And then he'd been graciously restored by God, and he just said, Lord, what are you doing? And all of a sudden, something just rose up, and he said to her, Tabitha, get up. It's almost the same as that 12-year-old daughter of Jairus, isn't it? Remember? Talitha Kumai. Little girl, get up. Daughter, get up. Get up. She opened her eyes. She woke up. And seeing Peter, she sat up. So holding both intention, not one at the expense of the other, I think is so important. When we default to the not yet, what's the not yet? Oh, the kingdom hasn't come yet. And you remember Thomas? It says Doubting Thomas had a twin. Who's his twin? We are. We're his twin. We're Doubting Thomases. Right? Because we're all children of the Enlightenment. You know what the Enlightenment is? There's two hemispheres to our brain. Right side, left side. Left side, reason. I can see, feel, touch, taste. I've got scientific proof, empirical evidence. I can analyze. And so with the enlightenment, that just kind of took over. 
the right side of our brain, which is intuition and inspiration and creativity. And it's not a man-woman man, thing. It's bo both genders have this, this right and left side of the brain. And the Enlightenment just made us all twins of Thomas. I doubt it. Is God going to show up? I doubt it. He didn't show up last week. Didn't show up, you know, and the only time he does show up is when I'm not there. We're doubting Thomas, right? So what does that tell you, right? So what defaulting to the not yet produces realism without expectation. God wants us to be realistic but also expectant, and that's attention. The world loses its magic. The world is no longer enchanted when we default to the not yet. There's no longer burning bushes to be seen. Angels, there's no, it leads to this boring secularism, rationalism, cynicism, and despair. I, I, I was inter interacting with someone this week, and they, they just said, matter of factly, yeah, the other morning an angel woke me up. And, 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 and I could see when they, they said it, at that point, they got overwhelmed. But when they were kind of leading up, just matter of fact. Now, let me tell you something. This is not some bozo that's, you know, in the mental hospital, okay? This was a person with pretty, pretty incredible credentials and credibility, okay? And, and, and I found myself going, do I really believe that? I've had angels encounters too. They always surprise you because they look like they're homeless and this kind of stuff, but one real disheveled guy, you know, the story coming back from Lowerthus. He, he did not look like an angel. There was certainly no wings. So defaulting to the not yet causes us to lose our outward focus. We circle our wagons. We become defensive. And, and safety becomes our preoccupation. And safety becomes more important than obedience. Can you imagine the little boy that, that gave his lunch for the 5,000? When they came to him and they said to him, Do you, can you give your lunch? And he could have said to them, that's not sustainable. <laughs> he had to see, have an expectancy that maybe there's more going on here. And so that's the tension of this whole sustainable outward focus is we live in another realm, another kingdom, but we can start living it and defaulting to the not yet where we're just safety. Oh, I don't know. I don't want to burn out. I don't want to. And we start becoming like this. That's not what this is about. I want us to be open-handed, risk-taking people. And yes, sometimes I'm going to overdo it. But I'd rather default to loving and risking and giving and sacrificing than living boring and safely. I was watching these birds. I was walk, doing my walk and I saw this cluster of birds and they were just all gorging on this little piece of food. On, on the boulevard, and as I got closer, all the birds went, Boo! except for one. One bird stayed. Everybody else went, Boo! they took off because I was walking by. And you should have seen that bird. Oh, man, did he have a feast. He just, Boo! it was all his own. Fear took the others away from the feast, and he was able to just pig right out. So defaulting to the not yet produces despair and cynicism. Guess what? So does defaulting to the already. Because it's unrealistic. 
It doesn't take into account that we live in a fallen world and we have these limitations as human beings. And then our bubble pops and we get, there's a lot of cynical, upset Christians that God didn't obey their formula. When I was growing up, there was, a, in the, there was a strain of teaching that came out of the charismatic Pentecostal movement called the Word Faith Teaching. And it became popularized by a guy named Kenneth Hagin. And the message was simply to recover the simple method, message of faith in our walk with Jesus. And I, I think it was a prophetic call from God to just give up our enlightenment default and begin to trust God again. The problem is some people took it to an extreme. And it became formulaic, and it became a way to order God around. You know, and command that Cadillac to show up in your front porch, your, you know, your front driveway, and all this. We call it over-realized eschatology, but a lot of the origins of it were from God, I believe, and still are. But it, it caused people to deny reality and, and really get upset with God when someone wasn't healed. We used to joke about the Pentecostal, the Baptist, and the Haganite who all went to hell. The Pentecostal said, I can't be here. I spoke in tongues. The Baptist said, I can't believe, I can't be here. I believe in eternal security. Once saved, always saved. The Haganite was off in the corner saying, I don't receive this. So, a lot of this is just a, a denying of reality when we default to the, the already. Defaulting is the, to the already is unsustainable because we are human, mortal, and, li and we have limits. Jesus, as a human being, still needed to rest. He still Sabbath. He still sought solitude and quiet and rested with his disciples. And he invited us to a journey of rest. When Jesus was on earth, he was limited to his earthly body. And he modeled that God is perfectly capable of being God, and I can be human. I don't have to be God. And to default on our humanity is to not let God be God. I was, at, I was at Chapters yesterday. Somebody had recommended a book, and I was looking for it. I'd bought a gift for my granddaughter, Alina, who turned seven this year, this, this, this week. Just saying. And uh, I got her a little LOL doll kit, you know, and all that. I had to get discipleship by the cashier. She was explaining how these things work. <laughs> and make sure I didn't buy the wrong parts and all that stuff. And so I was looking for this book, and it was, it was on eldership, and the, and, and the computer said it was in the section on living well and aging well. So I went to the aging well section, and I couldn't find my book I was looking for, and I scanned that, and almost half the books on aging well were books on how not to age. <laughs> Denying your that you're getting old. It's like how to stay young, how to keep those wrinkles, you know. It was all, it was just like, I, I just kind of like barfed. Couldn't believe it. That's not how you're going to age well, denying, denying that you're getting old. So God has made us with this tension in our own bodies. We have this right brain, right hemisphere, left hemisphere of our brain. And the left hemisphere wants to be in control. I think, therefore, I am. I am the center of truth and the arbiter of all knowledge. Is this brain of mine, right? But God made us with this right hemisphere that is also intuitive and loves mystery and is comfortable with not being in control. That loves the element of surprise and art and poetry and inspiration and 
thinks outside the box. And guess what? You have both in you. Now, we tend to default to one or the other, but you, you have both. The other thing I want to say, and I'm going to wrap this up, at Merrick gave me a beautiful gift a few weeks, a months ago, by a fellow who used to attend our church. How many remember Dennis Venema? It's been a few years. He's now a, 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 a world-class, uh, is it a genetic scientist? Is that what he does? Geneticist? Biologist. Anyway, he's a professor at, at Trinity Western University. And he co I'm still reading through the book. Couldn't understand half of it. I need you to help me with the interpretation, Merrick. But I'm getting to the juicy bits now because he wrote it with a theologian. Basically, what, what, what Dennis argues is, is through genetic science, not fossil evidence, but through genetic science, they are, there's strong evidence for the theory of evolution. And so, and, and, and that's, that's fine, you know, God could have brought us. The, the troubling thing for a lot of Christians is, is that through the genetic science, they can only reduce the actual human race to a bottleneck of about 10,000 people. There's no evidence that we actually were, began with an original couple. So that's really hard when we talk about our theology and about the gospel and Adam sinned and we're all sinners and Jesus is righteous and we're all righteous. So, they, so a, a wonderful theologian, Scott McKnight, one of my favorites, I, I love reading Scott, he does, he does uh, an analysis on this. And he talks about what you do, you know, when the, earth, when the Christians discovered the earth wasn't flat or that the sun didn't revolve around the earth, but the earth around the sun, that produced a theological crisis. It doesn't seem big now, but a lot of people lost their faith over that. So what Christians had to do is they had to go back to scripture with this new evidence and say, what do we do with this? And so that's what they do in this book. It's a, it's a wonderful treatise, and I don't have time to get into it today. But what I wanted to say is this. He said that the greatest reason why young people are leaving the church today is because they feel that they have to be intellectually dishonest to stay in the church. And what I love about this is that they embrace both. The already and the not yet. The right hemisphere, the left hemisphere. Empirical knowledge and intuitive knowledge. It doesn't clash, it doesn't conflict. And many Christians are beginning to rediscover their faith when they see that these are not in conflict, but they are a mystery. It is a mystery. So, good book. Second half is really good. First half, Merrick will explain it to you. So, embracing the not yet means accepting our mortality, humanity, and limits so that we live realistically. Whereas embracing the already opens us to taking the needed risks to love as followers of Jesus. You know, just saying to that neighbor that's got a, you know, a, a fused spine, uh, do you mind if I just say a little prayer for you? See what God does. Whenever I've done that, and it hasn't been often, but whenever I have done that, at the very least, they're touched by love. And isn't that what this is all about? Loving well? So as you reflect and pray about what you're hearing today, ask yourself, do I tend to default to the already or the not yet? 
I think I know the answer to that for most of us. We're Thomas's twins. But some of us are, you know, we get this, this honeymoon phase in our faith and we just lay hands on everything that moves and cast demons out of the bathtub and the toilet, and, you know. And, uh, yeah, sometimes we've had to cast demons out of the toilet. I don't, I don't want to demean that. The work in all of it. And what are some of the results of this default in my own life? Do I circle my wagons? Do I live safely? Or am I un unwise and insensitive to people's suffering because I'm so defaulting to the already that I don't, I don't acknowledge and, and name the suffering that people are facing? It's the mystery. And so what invitations might God be offering me to counter my default? You do not have to be intellectually dishonest to have faith. You don't have to unplug your brain. That all truth is God's truth. So if it's discovered by science, it's God's truth. If it's learning to discern the movings of the Holy Spirit, to heal the sick, to give a word of knowledge, to, to share a picture, a vision, it's if it's to believe somebody's story about an angel, it's God's truth. It's God's truth. I said it last week or the week before, this room is full of angels. Some of our children have seen them. Most of us are too preoccupied to see them. They're here. They're here. So could we say, come Holy Spirit, with maybe a little, with a fresh expectancy that maybe he might actually come, that he might actually hear our, our call and intervene. Hold something right now. Let's pray. Just I want you to just hold something in your heart where you need the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. It might be physical, emotional. Relational, financial, circumstantial. Where do you need the breakthrough? The cross tells us, dear ones, that the already and the not yet have come together. And that whatever's going on in your life, the kingdom is here. The kingdom I want to announce, wherever that is, that you are needing breakthrough right now. I want you to declare in the name of Jesus, the kingdom of God is here. The reign of God is here. Come, Holy Spirit. We invite you, Lord. We invite you to come. Break chains, Lord. Set captives free. Raise dead parts of us that are that have just fallen asleep because of disappointment and despair. Come, Lord. Holy Spirit, come. Where hopes have died, dreams have died, where we've despaired of promises that you gave us, Lord. Rise up. I say to you, Tabitha, rise up. Rise up. Begin to run again. 
gazelle begin to run in faith. Jesus. Can we just wait 